As we continue our studies this evening in the Gospel of Matthew, let me invite you to open your Bibles now to the 14th chapter, where we will pick up reading tonight in verse 13. So Matthew 14, 13 through 36. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate, besides women and children. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick, and they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it, were cured. Father, we pray that you might give us uh, tonight from your word um, to touch the fringe of Jesus' cloak, uh, to lay hold of his hand by faith, to embrace him, to be blessed by him, to know him, to walk more closely with him, to have his help in our lives. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. John the Baptist, as we saw on Sunday, has just been executed. He has been beheaded at the command of King Herod. He had been imprisoned in verses 3 and 4 because he dared to call the king to account on his sexual immorality, on his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife. 
And then John is eventually decapitated as a result of a poisonous mixture of Herod's foolishness in verse 7 and Herodias's vendetta in verse 8 and Herod's fear of man in verse 9. And when Jesus hears the news about John tonight in verse 13, he changes locations. When Jesus hears the news about John, he heads off to a secluded place, and he does so, we are told, alone. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. Now perhaps Jesus' withdrawal here is a safety measure. After all, his own ministry has been closely connected with that of John. John had baptized Jesus. John had served as his forerunner, and they'd both come preaching repentance and the kingdom. And if they beheaded John, Jesus may be reasoning here, they might also be willing to execute me. And since it's not my time yet, I'd better withdraw to some place a little more out of the way. That may be what's going on here with Jesus' withdrawal in verse 13. It may be a safety measure. Or it could be that Jesus heads off alone to a secluded place in order to give himself some time and space here to grieve his dead friend and cousin and kingdom co-laborer. Or, noting what Jesus does in verse 23 when he finally is able to be alone, it may be that The death of John laid upon Jesus a particular burden to be by himself in prayer. And of course, it could be all three or some combination thereof. Jesus could be withdrawing here to be safe and to grieve and to pray or some combination of those things. But whatever the case, though Jesus sets out alone in verse 13... Yet, when he reaches the secluded place, he's certainly not alone anymore. Now, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Now, this is remarkable. Jesus sets out in this dinghy by himself, verse 13, and with the intention, I presume, of being by himself for a season on the opposite shore of the lake. And yet, the privacy that he seeks is not yet forthcoming. He'll get it eventually in verse 23, but he's not going to have it yet. And how does Jesus respond to this? What is his attitude toward all these people clamoring for his attention when he has set out to be alone? He felt compassion for them. He felt compassion for them. And I say that's remarkable. And that word compassion there in verse 14 brings us to the first of four items that I want to consider this evening, namely Jesus' compassion. His compassion. Here is Jesus, maybe feeling endangered because of what has happened to John, perhaps still grieving his friend, his cousin, possibly really needing to get alone to pray or some combination of these things, and yet, other than the time spent in the boat crossing from one shore to the other, he can't seem to get away just yet from people who want his attention from people who need his help, 
Now, that's not to say these people are being selfish or insensitive. They may not know or they may not understand Jesus' reasons for seeking solitude. And so it's not necessarily that they're disregarding his needs, but that they've found one whom they are confident they can bring, to whom they are confident they can bring their needs. And so we shouldn't bash the crowd here. Uh, Maybe we should even learn something from their eagerness to seek out Jesus. And yet perhaps we do sympathize with Jesus himself who is seeking out seclusion and who can't yet find it. Who's seeking out solitude and who finds himself surrounded instead by people and by their needs. And we probably know the temptation that sometimes arises in our hearts to be irritated with such situations, to be exasperated with people who are needy for our time and our touch. And that knowledge of ourselves, I hope, helps us to appreciate all the more what we read here about Jesus. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Jesus loves people. And he meets their neediness. He meets their desire for his help. He meets their clamoring for his attention, not with annoyance, but with compassion. Remember that. Remember verses 13 and 14 here. When you find yourself in a needy situation, when you find yourself in need of his attention, he's not aggravated by your coming. He doesn't view you as an interruption. No, he's gone off to be alone, and yet when he gets there, all these people have come to see him, and he felt compassion for them. And then notice his compassion also, not only in healing those in this crowd who are sick, but then in doing the same down at the end of the chapter for the crowd that gathers There, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick, and they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were cured. He heals their sick as well. Now, the fact that these people are healed by touching the fringe of his cloak does not indicate passivity on Jesus' part here, because implied in the facts that Jesus is asked for permission to touch his cloak, verse 36, and that people actually do end up touching it, implied in those facts is that Jesus, who is asked for permission to touch his cloak, grants it. Implied here is that Jesus is allowing these people to touch his garment, that Jesus is granting these people healing. And so here's another show of his compassion. They sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick, and they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were cured, because Jesus is compassionate. And then back to the first crowd again, Jesus not only shows compassion on their sick, but also he shows compassion on their hunger. In verses 15 and following, Jesus may have more than one reason here for performing this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. One we'll see later is to help his disciples 
to see something. But surely one motivation for his feeding these people is simply because he genuinely cares about their needs. This is the same Jesus, remember, who has taught us to ask for our daily bread. And here he provides it. Here, in his compassion, he provides for these people. And he will provide for you as well, believer. He will provide for you. And then there's his compassion on Peter. On Peter. In that, even though Peter doubts when he's out there on the sea, even though Peter's faith is small, Jesus is not going to let Peter sink. And when you cry out with Peter, Lord, save me, he will stretch out his compassionate hand and take hold of you too. Your faith may be small, your doubts may be real, but when you call out to Jesus, he's compassionate and he answers. So let me ask you now, thinking of Jesus' compassion, in what ways do you need his compassion right now in your life? Maybe you are sick. Or maybe someone whom you know is sick. Or maybe you are in need of daily bread, of daily provision of some sort, like these people who we find in this chapter. It could be you're doubting like Peter and that your faith has been small. And, of course, in addition to our sinful doubting, we all stumble in many other ways too, don't we? And we're in need of Christ's compassion, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness when it comes to these matters. And there are perhaps other ways as well in which we in this room tonight are in need of Christ's touch, of his attention, of his compassion. What is it for you? Whatever it is, remember that your neediness, your calling out for his attention is not an annoyance to him. Remember that you're showing up on the seashore, as it were. Your persistence in seeking his help will not be met with irritation, but with compassion. Verse 14. And remember, too, that even though your faith may be small, Jesus will not allow to sink those who cry out with Peter, Lord, save me. So whatever it is, whatever your need is for his compassion tonight, cry out to him. Lord, save me. And he will. He is compassionate. And then let's notice tonight not only Jesus' compassion, but also in the second place, Jesus' power. His power. It's one thing in verse 14 that Jesus felt compassion for these people. Just like it's one thing if you visit a friend or if I visit a church member in the hospital and our hearts are moved by their suffering. That's a wonderful thing. Compassion is a good thing. And yet, moved with compassion though we may be in that hospital room, when we walk out of the room, the IV is still dripping. And the nurse is still working around the bed and the patient is still laying in the bed, right? And so it's one thing when Matthew tells us that Jesus felt compassion for these people. We marvel at that, I hope. But our cause for marveling is increased when we read not only that Jesus felt for these people, but that he actually healed them. 
Not only that Jesus had compassion on these needy people, but that he also had the power to do something with that compassion and for their needs. And it's the same thing with the sicknesses at the end of the chapter. And it's the same thing with the people's hunger in verses 15 through 21. And it's the same thing as well with Jesus' outstretched hand toward Peter in verse 31. Jesus doesn't just feel for these people, wonderful as that is, he's also powerful to actually intervene for them, to actually help them, to actually do something for them in his compassion. Just think about it. How easy would it be in the midst of a driving storm and battering waves like we find in this chapter to rescue a sinking compatriot? I've never been in a position to try to rescue someone out of the water, much less to rescue them out of the water in the midst of a storm. But I would imagine it could be quite difficult under these circumstances. And yet here's Jesus. He doesn't just desire to rescue Peter. He doesn't just have compassion on Peter and want to rescue Peter. He doesn't just attempt to rescue Peter. He actually rescues Peter. And not with a life jacket and ropes, apparently, but it would seem just by laying hold of him with his own hand, verse 31. That's amazing. Power. And if we think, well, maybe we could do that, it only gets more interesting, doesn't it, when we read that Jesus feeds 5,000 people. 5,000 men, actually, besides women and children, with five loaves of bread and two fish. Can we do that? And what about walking through the emergency room? What about if you left here tonight and said, I'm going to go down to the emergency room at UC Hospital, and I'm just going to let people touch the edge of my jacket? What would be the chances of any of them getting well? Zero, right? Unless God... Did something. You get the point, right? Tremendous power is on display in these events. Many of us are very familiar with them, and so we may not think as quickly as we ought about the amazing authority, the amazing might of Jesus that is shown here. People touch the fringe of his cloak, and they are well. Jesus pulls Peter up out of a storm-tossed sea with his hand. 5,000 people are fed with almost no resources. Tremendous powers on display here. And not only in the ways I've just noted, but also in the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. Verse 25. And of his enabling Peter to do the same. And as if walking on the water weren't enough... He's doing so, and he's enabling Peter to do so in the midst of this tumultuous storm. And then note this as well. Note in verse 32 that the wind stops once Jesus and Peter get into the boat. And though we're not told this, yet given how Jesus calmed a violent storm back in chapter 8, I think it's very possible that the dying down of the wind here may also have been here at Jesus' behest. And the point in all this is that Jesus possesses phenomenal power. Jesus is incredibly mighty. 
And that is reason, of course, for us to seek out that power, as do the crowds in our passage tonight. That is reason for us to go to Jesus tonight with whatever ails us and to not only expect him to have compassion on us, but to expect him to be able to actually do something, to actually help us, to be able to intervene for us. Jesus is not lacking in might. Whatever it is that you thought of a moment ago where you need his compassion, he is not lacking in the ability, in the power, in the might to meet you in your need. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? And then notice also in verse 33 that Jesus' power should not only move us to cry out to him, but also to bow down to him. Not only move us to prayer, but to worship. For after walking on the water, after the walking on the water and the rescue of Peter and the dying down of the wind, those who were in the boat, verse 33, worshipped him. They worshipped him. Do you worship him? Does the tremendous power of Jesus Christ, as you see it on display in the scriptures, as you've witnessed it, perhaps, in answer to prayer, as you've experienced it, perhaps, in the redemption of your own life and in the saving of those around you and in the power of his word like a mighty river to smooth out the rough places in your character, does the power of Jesus Christ move you to worship? Does it move you to awestruck praise when we sing these songs in this place? Do you sing them with gusto and with joy and with reverence? Does your heart bow in wonder before him? Let it do so. Meditate on the mighty power of Jesus Christ who heals the sick, who walks on water, who feeds the 5,000, who rose from the dead, who saves ruined sinners by his blood. Meditate on the power of Christ and worship. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Now that final phrase there in verse 33, those words of worship there in verse 33 bring us to our next heading. We've considered Jesus' compassion and his power. And now I think especially related to that power, let's also note Jesus' identity. Jesus' identity. I think it's likely that the disciples' response of worship and their recognition of Jesus' identity here in verse 33, their recognition that he is God's son in verse 33, I think it's likely that those things are not just related to these maritime events, but to Jesus' overall body of work, so to speak. Because they've seen many exhibitions of his power by this point in Matthew's gospel. And so their worship here and their recognition of Christ as the Son of God here probably arise out of a kind of cumulative effect of all that they've seen and heard up until this point. But it does seem that these recent events observed from their seats here in the boat 
are what give the most immediate impetus to their worship and its declaration there in verse 33, you are certainly God's son. And then zooming in on these events upon the sea, I also think it's possible that Jesus' compassion in lifting Peter up out of the billows is part of the reason why the disciples worship him here and recognize him as God's son. But I think perhaps that their worship and their recognition of who this Jesus really is probably has more to do with the amazing power that he displays in the midst of all the wind and the waves here. This man walks on water. This man enables Peter to walk on water. This man rescues Peter when he doubts and falls. And perhaps the disciples suspect, like I do, that Jesus also is the man who made the wind to die down in verse 32. And after witnessing these things, those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's Son, Jesus has shown them who he is. He has proven himself to be the Son of God. Herod, you might remember, heard of Jesus' might and said to his servants up in verse 2, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. The Pharisees, you might also recall, had gotten word of Jesus' power, and they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus' disciples here, espying the mighty power of Jesus from their seats in this boat, understand the true reason why Jesus can do such things. Because he is John the Baptist raised from the dead? No. Because he is in service of the dark power? No. Jesus can do these things because he is certainly God's son. This is Jesus' identity. It's not the only thing, of course, that we can say in identifying Jesus, but it is a profound thing. Jesus is the very son of God. Do you believe that? Do you see it here in this passage? And do you accept that it's true and worship him for it? The disciples get it here. They understand here in Matthew 14 that Jesus is certainly God's son. Now that's not to say that this reality of Jesus' identity had never come home to them before. Certainly Nathaniel, one of the 12, very early on had called Jesus the Son of God. But as they sit inside this boat, having witnessed all that they have just witnessed, the wildness of the waves, and yet Jesus walking on the water, and enabling Peter to walk on the water, and snatching Peter with his hand from the jaws of death, and now the wind lying utterly still, having witnessed all these things, the disciples seem to find themselves all the more sure now of this man's identity. You are certainly God's Son. The way they phrase it makes me wonder if they had already been thinking, it looks like he's God's son, maybe he's God's son, probably he's God's son, but now you are certainly God's son. Now, 
Their certainty here does not mean that the disciples will never struggle from this point on with doubt or dullness. But they have seen something here in the might, in the power of Jesus that is striking proof of who he is. And they believe it. And of course, they've seen other proofs. They've seen other acts of Jesus' power here in this chapter and at previous points along the way as well, so that their confession here, as I say, probably stems from a cumulative effect, and so that this is probably not their first inkling of Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And so I'm not suggesting that the disciples didn't get this at all before these events on the sea, and neither am I suggesting that they get them full that they get it fully and finally at this point so that there's never any struggle anymore with faith and yet there does come this aha moment here in the boat where they more clearly see Jesus for who he is and I simply say may it be that he grants us such moments of clarity in our lives as well may it be that he grants you, and then he grants me at certain times to more clearly see him for who he is, to more clearly see him as certainly God's son. Not that we haven't, many of us, seen and understood that before, and not that we will have arrived once he shows himself to us in such a clear way, but that he might enable us to all the more clearly see and to all the more certainly believe and to all the more gapingly worship and to all the more boldly proclaim that he is certainly God's son, that that is his identity. So then we've considered Jesus' compassion Jesus' power, Jesus' identity. And finally then, let's think before we close about Jesus' disciples. Jesus' disciples. We've just been learning about the worship of Jesus' disciples and their recognition of Jesus' identity. But the other thing I'd have you notice about the disciples in this passage is how they are twice bidden to do that which they cannot do, and yet they do it. The disciples in this passage are twice bidden to do that which they cannot do, and yet both times they do it. Think about it. The disciples don't have the wherewithal, do they, to provide food for all these thousands of people in verses 15 through 21? And yet Jesus bids them do it, doesn't he? The disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate and the hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. He bids them do something they cannot do. And then Peter, though Peter desires to walk on water, he can't actually do it in and of himself, can he? If Peter just gets out of the boat in his own strength, he's not going to be able to take one step. Peter can't walk on water. And yet, on Peter's request, Jesus bids him do it. Jesus bids him to walk on the water. Jesus bids him to come. And so I point out that twice the disciples are bidden to do in this passage what they cannot do. 
And yet I also point out that in both of these cases, they do it. The disciples do feed the crowds in verse 19. And Peter, until he takes his eyes off Jesus, does walk on water, verse 29. Which reminds us, as Jesus says elsewhere, that all things are possible with God. And that all things are possible to him who believes. God may sometimes ask you to do some things which are beyond your strength. Things which you cannot do yourself. And maybe sometimes the inability will be a very real physical one, as in these two instances in Matthew 14. Peter physically couldn't walk on water on his own, and these disciples physically couldn't feed 5,000 people on their own. And sometimes God may ask you to do something which for you would be physically impossible to do, but very often he may call you to take some steps that are mental or emotional or spiritual impossibilities for you, things which left to yourself, you'd never be able to bring yourself to do. God might ask such things of you. And when he does, you may feel like all you have to offer is five loaves and two fish. And how far will that really spread? Well, quite far in the hands of Jesus, right? Quite far if you give your little loaves and fish to the one who is certainly God's son. And how far can you really walk? in a place that is totally unnatural for you to walk. Quite far, if your eyes and heart remain fixed upon Jesus. How can you really share Jesus with that person with whom the Spirit is nudging you to share when it seems so frightful? How can you really confront that sin and that sinner whom you know God would have you confront? How can you overcome that besetting sin that has been so intrinsic to your lifestyle? How can you forgive that person who hurt you so deeply? How can you go to the mission field and learn another language and leave behind your parents and face the potential dangers and actually see any fruit in this task that seems so fraught with uncertainty? How can you actually stop being so habitually anxious? or depressed, or self-conscious, or whatever you wish you could stop being. Well, you bring your little loaves, and you bring your little fish to Jesus, and you trust him to multiply. You step out, verse 29, in faith, attempting to do what he has bid you do, and you keep your eyes fixed on him. You trust in him to do in you, through you, for you, or by you, what you could never do on your own. Now, ultimately, he'll be the one doing it, of course. We speak, don't we, of Jesus feeding the 5,000, not of the disciples feeding the 5,000. And yet the disciples did hand out the bread. And Peter did walk on water, not in his own strength, But he did walk truly on his own feet. And so it can be with you in the things that God calls you to do. 
Ultimately, it will be Christ's work, but you will be doing it as well, this thing or things that he gives you to do. With Christ, you really can do what God calls you to do, even when the task is such that left to yourself, you'd never be able to achieve it. Case in point, if you belong to Christ, case in point is that you've believed in him in the first place. In this case, you can't even talk about having five loaves and two fish to chip in and ask him to multiply because there's nothing that we have that we can offer him in these in this regard, there's nothing in us as natural men, as natural women, as natural girls or boys, there's nothing in us that seeks for God. There's nothing in us naturally that has the capability to turn to God. A natural man, 1 Corinthians 2.14, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You don't have the ability, and neither do I, to turn to God on our own, and yet many of us in this room have heard the Spirit of Christ bidding us to turn to Him, bidding us to believe, and we've done so. We've done what we have no innate ability to do, not in our own power, but by the supernatural working of God. And the God who gave you the ability to believe will also give you ability as you believe to do more and more things which on your own you could never do. You just keep your eyes fixed on He who is certainly God's Son.